Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher even if they don't. Today is Friday, October the 12th, 2012. This is episode 997 of the Survival Podcast. And because it's Friday, 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 we have your calls to 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. One of the callers today actually asked me to give out the actual number, so that's 866-658-4465. Again, 866-658-4465. You call that number, you leave your message in about two minutes, maybe three. I think it's how long I actually have the thing set to, but try to keep it at two. It'll help you, trust me. Call from a quiet area. If you're on a cell phone, make sure you have a good signal, a few bars or more. And uh, ask your question up front. Give the details second. That will help the call go smoothly. A lot of you guys don't trust me on that. And then you make a call and you go for three minutes and I don't know what your question is and it doesn't get on the air. That's how that happens. Get your question or your point out in the first one to two sentences. And I promise you it will go well for you and you'll be more likely to get on the air. Uh, before I take your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, ShelfReliance.com. Shelf Reliance is in a shelf, not self-reliance as in you, yourself, and you. Right? Shelf, like something you put things on. Why? Because they specialize in innovative food storage solutions that allow you to eat what you store and store what you eat. And they also have the Thrive brand of long-term storage food. Check them out today at ShelfReliance.com. Next up today, the Free State Project. Hey, you know you can vote with your feet? Uh, one of the foundations of a republic is if one of the member states does some really stupid stuff and it irritates its best citizens, they might pack up and leave and go to another member state and retain all of the privileges of a citizen of the republic and all of the rights of a citizen of the republic at the same time without some of the encumbrances put onto them by the individual member state. This concept led to the Free State Project, which is where uh, thousands of people are getting together to move the state of New Hampshire to try to turn it into the freest state in the Union. You can uh, be part of that by moving there, relocating your, there yourself. You can learn more about that at freestateproject.org. Or you can just simply help them out, maybe speak at their events, contribute to them in some other way. What I do here is an example of that. They are not actually a sponsor of the show. I sponsor them, which means I give them a slot that all the other advertisers pay for, for free is my way of contributing to the liberty movement in New Hampshire through the Free State Project. Not in the cards for me to go there, but there's always a way that you can help liberty. And remember, a fight for liberty somewhere is a fight for liberty everywhere. Next up, remember to check out tspcopper.com for some really cool copper coins, including one for the Free State Project. One for the Survival Podcast, The Real Truth About Money, uh, Ron Paul's work, and many other really cool things are available in copper medallion form in official AOCS barter currency, Value 2. Check them out today. And remember, the pricing there are for rolls of 20, not for individual coins. It's not $34 for a copper coin. It's $34 for a roll. I was really shocked that one person thought that, but apparently one person did. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, you'll be supporting the show at 18.3 cents an episode. You'll get a great deal. Trust me, there's a huge ROI if you actually use the benefits that are there. Uh, discounts to over 30 vendors, over $150 worth of free ebooks that you can download and keep forever on day one, and many other great, cool resources available as a support brigade member. Remember, if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, 
or a first responder like, say, a paramedic, active duty, or prior service, if you email me before you join, I will spend, send you a special discount code to thank you for your service. And with the housekeeping wrapped up, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show and take that first call. Hey, Jack, Sean in Connecticut calling again. And uh, hey, so I've been listening to your show for you know for years. I really enjoy your stuff. And I was trying to turn my brother-in-law onto it, and we listened to, uh, to the pawn in the system. Uh, episode the other day, and you know, he thought you made a lot of sense about how neither the Democrats or Republicans have any real solutions uh, to um, to our problems. And he said, "So, what would this guy's, you know, your, what would Jack's solutions be? What, what kind of things does he recommend as a solution?" And I didn't have an answer for him other than just to be prepared and uh, you know, build community and uh, you know, take care of yourself and. And whatnot. So, so what would be? Would that be your answer to uh, to a question like that, or, or what would you say your you know proposed solutions to our problems are, other than just take it on as an individual and uh, take care of yourself? Let me know if I got it right, man. Thanks. I enjoy your stuff. Bye. Well, no. I mean, that's that's a pretty short answer to a, a pretty deep question that has a lot more going on with it. And I'll talk about it a little bit right now and kind of like you know the elevator speech version of it. But it's actually a great opportunity for me. Um, yesterday, I had James Howard Kunstler on, and some of the audience thought it was probably one of the best episodes ever, and some not so much. They were pretty upset. Uh, and I think some of you guys are upset at me because he made certain comments about Southerners that I didn't respond to because, well, there was no point to responding at that time. Um, you got an older guy that's set in his ways, but he's on a walk from uh, the complete world of liberotopia, you know, where he believes in the liberal ideal, to political atheism. And I've seen that evolve in his writing. And when somebody's in that process, you don't slam the door in their face when they give you an opposing view. You simply let them make it, and you let it hang out there, and you let them think about it after they did it, and you present them with other ideas. And so that's how I handled, handled that show. And I think if you go listen to that show, and you listen to the end of it, you'll get sort of an answer to your question, and you'll also get sort of the way that I handled it and why. At the end of that show, what I said is that the greatest failure of leadership in this nation is failure of leadership at the individual level. And if you heard his response, you can tell it was absolutely 100% not what he expected. I think he had already been way kind of blown away with how well he was received and how many things we agreed upon. But at that point, I believe that he probably felt like he got hit in the face with a two-by-four of truth. And I wanted to do a whole show about things like things based on the conversation that we had. And I wanted to do that show so bad, I almost preempted today's show to do it. I'm not going to. I'm going to do that show next week. And uh, I'll do it probably Tuesday, and I think Wednesday's episode 1000. And uh, episode 1000 might get pushed to Thursday just so I can I can make it work. I am st Guys, I am like totally down with the crud right now, and I am doing everything I can to make sure I get a show out every day for you guys, just so you know that. So I may need an extra day to get all that stuff done next week, so there may be a day that we take off. Um, but I'll tell you this, um, when you ask what I would do, you really have to look at it more from a standpoint of what can you do to make a difference. You can look at what I would do. What I would do is what I'm doing every single day. 
I am teaching people about personal responsibility for their own lives, individual leadership, individual responsibility, self-sufficiency, and independence. And that if they can build that, and not necessarily build that as an isolationist in the middle of nowhere, which I think is a place that Kunstler is struggling with, that when he hears something like self-reliant, independent, he thinks of a guy doing something in a Unabomber shack or something like that. Those that have been around here for a while know that that's not the case with me, that I believe that liberty and independence are so unique and so personal, it's not possible for one person to tell another person exactly what they should, what they should do to have it. How can I tell you what you should do to have liberty? That's like me telling you what you should do to be happy. Well, you know, I'm happy eating grapes, so you should eat grapes. I'm allergic to grapes. Shut up and eat the grape. I don't care if it kills you. It makes me happy. It'll make you happy too. doesn't work, does it? So what I believe we need to do to make a difference is as many, as people, as many people as possible to wake up to the false paradigm, the false reality that... You know, side A or side B will fix it for us. That the government is good and they want everything to be wonderful and they're doing their best and they really care about you because they don't. They care about getting elected. They care about, they care about power and they care about control. They, I, I do actually believe in the end that the government does care about the, 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 the good of the people overall. I just think that they care about wealth, power and control first and then the good of the people fourth, right? They come in that, the three, you can put them in any order you want. And because of that, The good of the people truly never will come first with government because government is concerned with maintaining control. And even when they have the benevolent thought of it's for the good of the people, I have to do it to maintain control so I can help. See, that's how it works. And that's how power always works. So the way that you influence real change in the world is through a completely decentralized model. So if somebody wants socialist utopia, everybody shares, whatever, I've never had a problem with that as long as you don't make me be part of it. You don't force me at a point of a gun, which is what government is. Force, co you know, coercion at the point of a barrel of a gun with the, with the threat of either death or incarceration for defiance. I don't want to be part of a system like that. If you want to build a system that has all of the socialist, you know, underpinnings in it, God bless you. And anybody you can get to go along with you, go do it. And if you can make it work, great and be an example. Where if I want something that's more of a libertarian model, then it's incumbent upon me to do that. And I don't want to go too much deeper than that today because I, I'll just you know go into the whole show that's on my heart right now that I want to do. But my, my basic solution then is each individual seeking independence and liberty in their own life and building whatever level of community they're comfortable with around that and demonstrating their solutions. So that people talk about the republic as 50 laboratories, 50 laboratories of democracy. You know, if California is doing something right, then Georgia can learn from that. But if California is doing something stupid, Georgia can learn from that as well, and vice versa. Well, why do we have to limit ourselves to 50 laboratories? Or even, you know, however many counties or cities there are to that many laboratories. Why can't we have millions of laboratories, millions of laboratories of innovation, toward individual liberty in whatever form people want to have. And certain places will be not conducive to what one, one group wants, but that's the beauty of a republic is they can find a place that is. And eventually, all of these systems lead toward the same place, which is individual free choice, but nobody getting a free ride on somebody else's back. So that's what I would do. Let's take another call. Jack. Brenton, PEI. I have uh, a tomatillo plant that's about to be succumbed to the frost in the next couple of weeks. 
Have you or any of your listeners dehydrated tomatillos, rehydrated them, and used them in salsa verde? Uh, second uh, question, under your uh, number 86665, think, I'm an old man and I need to hold that phone out a long way. Could you put the other, like the regular number underneath the think or am I SOL on that one? Anyway, have a good one. Thanks, man. Well, there was the guy that wanted the phone number. So one more time for you, Brent, 866-658-4465. And I'll see if I can squirt that into the uh, at least the, the show notes on the Friday show since I pretty much cut and paste the previous uh, episode uh, every week doing that one should square that away for you. And sometimes I forget that uh, some people's phones don't have letters or maybe it's hard to read them if you have one of those Blackberries with little tiny letters or something like that. Anyway, um, on the Tomatillos, I'm going to give you a pretty quick, short, and, and simple answer. Uh, never done it. No reason it wouldn't work. I mean, that, that's pretty much what it comes down to. I would take the same uh, process that would be used for dehydrating tomatoes and use that on tomatillos, which means I would simply cut them into an appropriate size and dehydrate them. I wouldn't worry about any kind of blanching or anything. For a little bit of research I did for your response, I didn't find any need for that. I would tell you that the one thing that's probably going to change is one of the greatest things to do with tomatillos before you make salsa verde is to roast them. And I don't think you're going to get that same type of effect if you rehydrate uh, tomatillos and then roast whatever rehydration results you get from that. And I don't think it would be, probably would not be a good idea to roast them first and then dehydrate them, though I guess that could be tried. Um, some of the research I also did leads me to an understanding that dehydrated tomatillo actually becomes quite sweet compared to the tartness that it had, so that may or may not be something that you're looking for. But I don't see any reason you can't do it. Pretty much we can dehydrate any vegetable. Some of them require blanching. Uh, tomatillo, uh, from my investigation, should not. And with its similarity to a tomato, I would not expect that it would either. So give it a try and let us know how it works. Let's take another call. Hey, good evening, Jack. This is Jack in Orlando, Florida, and I have a question for Steve Harris. Uh, on Solar 1234C recommends Tenergy D-cell rechargeable nickel metal hydride batteries uh, and a charger to charge those batteries. And my question is, why buy a second charger in these Tenergy batteries when I can use C and D-cell battery adapters made by Sanyo that lets me use my AAA and AA Eneloops as C and D-cell batteries? Um, will the small batteries in these adapters not put out the 10,000 milliamp hours of juice per battery like the Tenergies do? Is it, uh, or is there some other um, reason they wouldn't work as well? I'm just curious what he thinks. I uh, love the show. Take care of yourself, Jack, and uh, good luck with your move to Texas. All right, take care. Bye. Well, uh, time to hear from the expert council. We'll actually be doing three segments here, uh, three three questions here in a row for different expert council members. And since this is uh, Steve's recommendation, I'll let him uh, answer the question. Take it away, Steve. Hello, Jack from Orlando. The AA cells can never, ever come close to the capacity of a D-cell battery. It's like asking a quart of water to be the same as a gallon of water. It just isn't going to happen. A good nickel metal hydride pre-charged AA cell is going to be between 2,000 and 2,200 milliamp hours. Don't fall into the trap of trying to buy 2,500 or 2,800 nickel metal hydride AA cells. It's a marketing numbers game and they don't last. The D-cell nickel metal hydride battery will be about 10,000 milliampere hours. That's about five times the size of a AA nickel metal hydride battery. Contrast this to a real alkaline D-cell being between 14,000 and 15,000 milliamp hours. 
So double A to D cell or C cell shells to allow a double A battery to fit in the space of a D cell battery are what I call a third level backup. First, you have alkaline D cells ready to go. Second, you have nickel metal hydride D cells for your items. Third, only if you're out number one and don't have number two would you use the double A cell to D cell spacers and even then they don't work perfectly. Many times the battery springs of your D-cell device don't hit the AA cell just right and does not make a connection. And don't forget, they're only going to have about one-fifth or less of the energy of D-cells. These shells and adapters are available available on Amazon.com, and I put a link to them on www.solar1234.com with some extra notes you can read up there. But I put a disclaimer in there, these are not Harris approved unless it's for a third level backup. Two is one, one is none, three is a lot better. Oh, and if you do get them, make sure you play with them, test them, drain them, use them so you know how they will fit, how they'll fit and they'll work and how they'll behave when it comes time for you to use them. But of course, I tell you to do that for everything. I've made it a lot easier for you to listen to my past shows. They are all online and ready to play on your iPhone, Android, or computer at solar1234.com. For the TSP expert panel, this is Steve Harris saying thank you. Call in some more questions. Bye-bye. Well, great answer from Steve. I completely concur with that. And uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi. My name is Thesia from Northeast Oklahoma, And I believe that my question is for Chef Keith Snow. As a wife and a mother and a grandmother, my job is to keep things as normal as possible, regardless of what's going on in the world, and that includes baking occasionally. It seems to me that leavening has a definite shelf life. Is there a way to store leavening long term, or do I need to learn how to make my own baking powder, baking soda, and yeast? Just so you know, my 22-year-old son turned me on to you, He even got me an iPhone and trained me on how to use it so that I can listen to your podcast. Thank you for everything. Bye. All right, that's a great question for Keith, and we've actually doubled up on him, so we'll have another one right after that as well. But go ahead, Keith. Let's uh, hear the answer to this one. <clears throat> okay. In three, two, one. Chef Keith Snow here. Wanted to answer... Um, The question about yeast and baking powder and baking soda that, uh, that wonderful woman, um, I think she was from North Dakota that called in. Cessia, I believe her name was. It was a little hard for me to understand. Uh, first of all, thank your son for turning you on to the Harvest Eating Podcast. I appreciate that. And let's talk about, um, fermentation and, and creating breads and yeasts and baking powder and all that. I think it's really great that uh, you're taking charge of this because um, someday may, maybe we won't be able to go to the store and, and buy these items. But um, to get baking powder, it's a very simple combination. And if you search the web how to make baking powder, you'll see that baking powder is just a mixture of two ingredients, baking soda and cream of tartar. And uh, these things do have a very, um, you know, I would say limited shelf life. If you seal them up really well and remove as much air as possible from the container, you'll get a longer uh, shelf life. Uh, but it's very easy to mix those two ingredients up and uh, make your own baking powder. And baking powder, of course, reacts with liquid and it releases a gas. It helps create bubbles and, and give breads and things like that lift and rise. Um, of course, yeast does a very similar thing. Uh, 
Now, as far as yeast um, and talking about prepping and survival and that kind of thing, we buy yeast in um, big blocks. Probably, I think they're one-pound blocks. We, we get them frozen. Actually, we don't get them frozen, but we do freeze them. And uh, I've been doing that for a number of years, and I've never had any problem. I've had yeast in the freezer, um, big blocks of it like that, powdered yeast for well over a year, and I use you know some every week, and I've never had a problem with it going bad. So uh, if you plan on keeping your freezer going, yeast uh, can be kept in the freezer just fine. Um, but if you want to make baking powder, um, definitely search online. It's very easy to make it. And if you have those two ingredients on hand, cream of tartar and also baking soda, you can make baking powder. But um, long term, if we were in a, a collapse situation, I think you'd want to be learning how to make your own yeast and uh, starters and things like that, um, which was done, you know, has been done for forever. And you have to think about it. You can make yeast from potatoes. Um, you can make starter with different fruits. Uh, apples, for instance, grow all over the United States, are readily available. The skins of apples, the skins of grapes, things like that have um, wild yeast right on them. So you can uh, make yeast using these things and make starters and whatnot. Uh, I've done it in the past with red grapes, just taking red grapes and uh, put, putting them in cheesecloth and crushing them and uh, letting them sit in a container for, you know, a couple of weeks almost until it ferments and, and creates a starter. And then uh, taking that liquid and feeding it with some flour. And if you, again, in a survival situation, you could be grinding your grains and uh, making starters like that. And once you have a starter, as long as you feed it, um, they can last hundreds of years. And there are starters around the world. Uh, big famous bakeries in France and even some in the United States since the 1800s where the same starter is um, sitting in that refrigerator and being fed every day or every couple of days to keep it alive. And, uh, you know, once you get a good strain of starter, you don't want to let it die. And we love to use uh, sourdough in our house. One of my favorite things is either sourdough waffles or sourdough pancakes and, of course, sourdough bread, but sourdough pancakes are wonderful. So uh, I hope that helps answer your question about um, the yeast. And I've got a couple of uh, resources for you. If you want to email me, keith at harvesteating.com, I will send you a couple of articles on uh, making yeast from potatoes, the method, and uh, I'll be happy to do that. So uh, thanks so much for calling in there. I, I definitely uh, think that's a great question, and those are the type of things that we need to be thinking about you know how how do you uh, how do you bake bread without yeast if if you know if it goes bad or baking powder and all those things can be made but the fact that you're thinking about it is really important so uh, that is wonderful um, great stuff as always from Chef Snow let's go ahead and take another one this one is one I'm kind of inter interested in hearing the answer to myself uh... hi this is Paul from Australia I've got a question for Keith Snow. Um, uh, sardines are a uh, pretty cheap for, form of protein. Um, has he got any good recipes for them? Um, because whenever I try and cook something with them, it always kind of repeats on me and it's a bit, a bit foul. So are there any recipes that kind of take that out and make it quite nice? Thanks. 
Now, I'm actually really interested to hear what Keith has to uh, say to this, and I'm actually, as I'm editing the show together, going to be listening to Keith's response uh, for the first time. I, I just uh, got it all imported and ready to go for this episode, so I don't even know what he's going to say. Um, but I've been pretty much the kind of guy that I just pretty much use sardines uh, out of the can the way they are, and uh, I like them on crackers, and I don't eat a lot of crackers anymore, so I wonder what thoughts uh, Mr. Snow has. Mr. Snow, what do we do with sardines, man? Hey, Chef Keith Snow here. Wanted to answer Paul's question from Down Under in Australia. Uh, it seems that um, Paul is interested in, in learning how to cook with sardines, and he says that when he eats them, it kind of repeats on him and a little bit nasty and all that. And uh, Paul, um, I'm a chef, man. I'm not a magician. I don't, I don't know what you want me to do about that, but sardines are uh, honestly not one of my favorite foods. I'll, I'll be, uh, very upfront with you. I don't cook with sardines often. Maybe, maybe once a year. And that's usually in a Caesar salad type dressing. Um, and pardon my voice, by the way. I'm suffering tremendously from allergies in the last couple of days. So, uh, that's why I sound like I have a cold. But with, um, sardines, you have to decide, uh, are they going to be fresh? Do you have a source of them fresh? I mean, these things are eaten all over the world, and they are a terrific source of protein. Just like a bluefish on the East Coast, uh, particularly up in Cape Cod, where I've got some family and have spent many, many summers, uh, we used to go fishing for bluefish, and it's the same type of, it's much bigger, of course, than a sardine, but a real oily, kind of stinky type of fish with a very dark kind of flesh. Um, a lot of people will eat bluefish, but they, they definitely have to be eaten pretty quickly. You don't want to take one of those things and put it in the refrigerator for a couple of days. And I'm sure it's the exact same thing with uh, freshly caught sardines. And those are really big um, in the Far East, but also in the Mediterranean. But you can buy them canned. And they come canned either in oil or, or salt-packed. I think the salt-packed ones are a little better. But one thing you want to make sure is a lot of the cans that these sardines come in uh, are uh, ones that have BPA in them. So if you search for healthy alternatives like Vital Choice, and I believe Whole Foods might have a brand um, where they're where they're packed in BPA-free cans. I think that's definitely important to look out for. But as far as them making as far as making them taste better and and not you know repeating on you as you suggest, well, I think you have to. I mean, if you're just eating a big plate of them. That's going to be difficult. But if you're using them to flavor other things, like a tomato sauce, for instance, a couple of salt-packed sardines um, minced up really finely and uh, mixed into a tomato sauce with capers and, and green olives, things like that can be an excellent addition. Uh, also, I mentioned, you know, in a Caesar salad, but if you're talking about eating these things just for getting the protein, you're probably talking about eating more of them. But uh, mixing them into other dishes, um, you, you can make focaccia bread and put sardines on top of it and bake it. Um, of course, pizza, I just mentioned pasta. There's lots of different ways, but at the end of the day, if these things bother your stomach, um, Maybe you should look for a different protein source. I mean, you guys got a ton of kangaroos over there. I mean, just shoot some of them. But uh, just kidding. Um, that's really my take on sardines. I do have a couple of cool recipes for sardines. If you want to email me, uh, Paul, just do that at Keith at HarvestEating.com, and I'm happy to uh, send you a couple of uh, resources for cooking with those stinky little sardines. But um, in my book, for me, if I'm looking for protein and uh, times get tough, I probably uh, would eat tuna fish over sardines. I'm not sure the comparison on protein, but um, 
I know I couldn't get my kids to eat sardines, put it that way, because I've tried and they've, they didn't even know there were sardines in there and they, ooh, this tastes like fish. So, um, good luck with that. And, uh, I wanted to also mention to everybody a plug for the MSB members. Harvesting now offers a 15% off discount in the store. And, uh, be sure to check out harvesting.com and also, uh, the TV show, which is on RFD TV for those of you that get that. Uh, RFD TV is a cable channel, national cable channel, and it's in about 55 million homes. If you've got Dish Network, I believe it's channel 231. If you've got Direct TV, I think it's 345. And if it's just a regular cable that you have, um, just check with your your listings there. And uh, you can also watch all of my programming on the Roku, which is R O K U dot com. Roku, which is a really cool thing. And uh, we're we're on Roku, so check that out. And a lot of the TV shows that we've produced are also um, being loaded onto Roku. So uh, that's it. Thanks so much, guys, for supporting Jack and the Survival Podcast and Harvest Eating as well. And uh, keep those questions coming. Take care. I think that's the best answer a guy that clearly really doesn't like sardines could probably give. Um, I think Keith can, can tolerate them and use them in certain ways, but um, it's an interesting idea because it's a great protein source. It's affordable. It's highly available. Um, the, I agree with the salt-packed ones having more utility for certain things, but the oil-packed ones come with oil, which in, in, in a real pinch could be used as a flammable uh, source of fuel or something like that. So I'd love to hear from you guys. Is there anybody out there that's kind of like me that really digs and likes sardines that's come up with some other ways to use them? Otherwise, I uh, appreciate uh, Chef Keith's response, and make sure you do check him out. He did mention he is now part of the Member Support Brigade, and I let him make that announcement, but he's in there, and you can get a great discount, and you will find him right at the top of the list as a new MSB vendor in the benefits section of the MSB. Let's take another question for yet another expert council member. Hi, Jack. This is Rick from Indiana. Rick Rack on the farm. I have a question that goes along with your background in the military. I um, was watching one of the dreaded doomsday prepper shows and saw a military vehicle that would run on just about any fuel. I believe it was diesel, um, oil, used uh, motor oil, and wanted to get your thoughts on uh, that type of vehicle and would that be a good bug-out vehicle. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Uh, great question, and I could answer that. But like I said, we're going to throw this to another expert council member because there's a guy that can do it far greater justice than me. Expert uh, council member Tim Glantz from Old Grouch's Military Surplus, who's uh, served well over 20 years in the capacity of uh, uh, vehicle maintenance and is currently a chief warrant officer in the United States Army Reserve. So, Tim, take it away. Hi, Jack. Tim Glantz from the Old Grouch's Surplus with an answer for Rick's question. It sounds like he saw an M35 series deuce and a half, what is known as the MAN hypercycle engine. It is a true multi-fuel engine based on technology developed by the MAN company in Germany in World War II. It is compression ignition like a diesel, but it uses a different injection method and combustion chamber design to achieve the multi-fuel capability. It will burn diesel, kerosene, heating oil, used motor oil, vegetable oil, and it will use gasoline, but it doesn't like gas as much, and you really need to mix some gas, the gas with some oil or something else to uh, somewhat take the uh, edge off of it. It's one advantage of its multi-fuel capability. It has, however, some distinct disadvantages. Uh, parts are hard to get compared to most engines. You go into Napa, and you can get some filters, and that's about it. And even then, you have to buy another filter set to get the right gasket. 
they have a short lifespan compared to most modern engines. In 20 years of messing with them, I've never seen one go past 100,000 miles. I read a study once that showed in Vietnam the average uh, lifespan was under 20,000 miles for these engines. They're really sensitive to being over-revved, and when they fail, they usually throw a rod through the block, so it's toast. But the biggest disadvantage is that they come with a deuce and half wrapped around them. Don't get me wrong, I own a few, and they're fun, but for 99% of us, a vehicle of that size is not very practical. They get horrible mileage, and when we're talking about something in a vehicle that we choose because it may be better when fuel is short, choosing a vehicle gets five miles per gallon is going a bit backwards. They're loud, uncomfortable, hard to drive, uh, and pretty much overkill for most people. Unless you have a ranch or a timber operation or something that actually requires a truck of that size, uh, it's going to be too much. Keep in mind that most older mechanical diesel injection trucks from the 80s and 90s that you got in your pickup trucks will burn almost everything that engine will, other than gasoline. And even that to a degree is blended, but you have to, you know, not go over about 20% with most of the blends. So you get 90% of the multi-fuel capability of these trucks in a practical vehicle by focusing on those trucks. Uh, for, for the vast majority of people, that's a better option. We covered this pretty good uh, on episode 745, so if Rick hasn't listened to that or anybody else is interested, I would suggest they go back and listen to that uh, for a good bit more information. Hope this helps, and always thanks for the great show, Jack. Well, great response from Tim, as always, and uh, for the mention there of episode 745, I will put a link in today's show notes to it, so you guys can uh, kind of go back a, a few, probably about a year and a half ago we did that show, and uh, get more information on that topic. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one of your calls. Hi, Jack. Rick from Indiana, Rick Rack on the farms. Uh, with all that's happened in the economy today, and the upcoming collapse, it just feels a matter of time before it happens. Um, what's your opinion on what's going to happen to consumer debt? Um, we know what's going to happen more than likely with what's going to happen with the government debt, but what about the credit cards, the house loans, the car loans, and everything else? Um, just wanted to get your opinion on what you thought that would happen. Thanks. That's kind of acting, asking, like, will it rain on January 14th, uh, 2016 in Tallahassee, Florida? And if so, will it rain an inch uh, or a half inch, a quarter inch or four inches? And if it doesn't rain, what will it do? Um, the answer is we really don't know. But we can we can speculate on some of the things that might happen with consumer debt. Um, in a, a shifted economy. And remember, I don't think we have a crashed economy. I think we have a shifted crashed economy. In other words, the, the concept, and, and this is something people struggle with, the concept that a nation like the United States that has an, an incredible, vast richness in natural resources, uh, in human resources, it just has so much going for it from an intrinsic standpoint, would have the economy collapse and just stay there, and it's just going to be gone. It's really, it defies all logic with, you know, again, the one in a million, you know, EMP, perfect strike that takes out everything. And, and even then, you're going to have some kind of a rebuilding of economy. But with a, a simple economic collapse, um, akin to a, a Great Depression going from uh, gold to paper gold with a, a revaluation uh, scenario like they did, Uh, during the Great Depression, but honestly far worse than that for the people of the country, um, what you're probably going to see is there are going to be groups of people 
that overall kind of just kind of get through it. Uh, they don't do really well. A lot of their wealth gets depleted, but they get through it. And many of those people will pay their debt. Um, many other people will default on their death. Many uh, their death default on your death. I wish you could figure out how to do that. Anyway, but many others will default on their debt. Uh, specifically, they will default on debt like uh, credit card debt, uh, consumer level debt. So if I am now uh, Joe idiot who has lived my entire life under the belief that the paradigm will never shift, and I had a really good income, and I had a really nice house, and I I have huge credit card bills, and you know my credit card bills in total are twelve hundred dollars a month. And on top of that, I'm sitting on like a house payment of like two thousand bucks, and I've got some student loan payments and things like that, and I've got to pay the basic bills to keep the lights on and food on the table. And I get to a point where I just say to myself, Joe, idiot, you were an idiot, and we're in the middle of an economic catastrophe now that that makes two thousand eight look like the good old days, and you can't pay all your bills. Which bills do you think I'm going to default on first? And they can send me threatening letters. They can do all types of things. But what they're going to do is threaten it. You know, the big threat from the consumer level debt people is we'll we'll ding your credit. Well, you know, we'll probably be living in an economy where credit won't be that available anyway. So I don't know what it's going to mean for those guys, other than probably another hefty bailout from Uncle Scam. Um, I don't think that that will ever be forgiven. I think it will haunt those people for the rest of their lives as the economy rebuilds, and some of those people will eventually have to repay it. But I think it will be the most defaulted-on form of debt known to man uh, as we go through a shift in the economic paradigm because you can't escape student loan debt. And many people, if they can find any way to do it, will keep their homes, especially as we move into an environment where if you lose your home, it becomes very difficult to ever own another home because uh, credit restrictions go crazy. And we're likely to see a tightening up of lending like you've never even thought of before. But the reality is we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know uh, what type of oppressive hand may come down and say, you know, we can't allow this. We can't allow this. Um, uh, additional new restrictions and new regulations over bankruptcy is something we could definitely see that makes it harder for people to ever escape the trap of debt. So the, 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 the reason people usually ask this question is they're thinking, well, I might as well just go blow it all on MasterCard, get all my preps in place using American Express, and when it collapses, screw them. And, and the problem is, number one, you don't know when it's going to actually do that. So you have to live with the debt until then, even if everything did work out by some magical unicorn fart, uh, where you could just get forgiven of the debt, which ain't going to happen. So the, the answer is still stay out of debt, especially consumer debt. It's the most insidious debt because it buys nothing of real lasting value. When you buy real property, at least you have something that has lasting value. You're leveraging debt for a purpose. Uh, when you use uh, a credit card to go buy an iPod, I mean, you're, you're buying a technology that will become obsolete in a matter of years. We all know that. And most consumer debt is spent on things that, that lose value dramatically quick and are generally considered worthless within two years. Um, so that's my thoughts on it, and uh, that's about all I can tell you. And the formula is still stay away from debt at, at all costs. Um, if you do that, and if you store up as much wealth as you can in commodities, and yes, cash, hard commodities as well, um, and, and property, it may very well be that as the, the economy rebuilds and restructures, those that are, are uh, not pulled down heavily by debt may have incredible opportunities in the future. I'm not saying it's all going to be sunshine and roses. You guys know I think it's a very dark place that we're heading through. 
But there's also the darkest before the dawn theory. And there are generally in collapses tremendous opportunities to build wealth or to build lifestyles. And those come to the people who do the right things in the good times and don't just believe that they'll go on forever. Right back to the old story of the grasshopper and the ant. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Thanks for everything you do. Listen, i got a question for you. I live in a county where they don't really allow chicken uh, to be kept in the backyard, specifically in areas that are zoned residential. Now, they've put up an ordinance that would allow for what they call broader rights, and it's a permissive law. And they use language like that, suggesting that it's going to be good for more people to keep chickens with this ordinance. The problem is the ordinance is chock full of restrictions, not to mention $50 fees, initial inspections, and then, of course, things that I want to do, like you're not allowed to slaughter chickens or sell your eggs. You have to have certain uh, enclosure requirements and dimensions and everything else like that. Uh, so I'm just kind of torn. On one hand, I want a law that would allow keep me legal instead of having to do it underground. And then on the other hand, I don't want to support this law because of all the restrictions. What would you do? Should I make a, a, a big stink about it and, and, and try to you know, fight it? And what would be the best procedure? I've never really uh, had much interest in going down to council and trying to get involved that way. So I just thought maybe you could provide some insight on that. On another note, just wanted to, miss, to thank you for the uh, information on the Appleseed.org, uh, on the Appleseed Project, sending my wife to a rifle course. She's never fired a rifle before. She in, invited three other ladies from church, and now they're all going to do it at the end of this month. It's a great show, and thanks for everything else you do. Have a good day. Okay, well, I mean, I'm going to start off with the fact that I absolutely would not oppose the law. I would support the law because the law right now is not you get no no choice whatsoever and this law at least allows for chickens with restrictions um, let's talk about a few of the issues enclosure sizes and things like that um, I actually don't have a big problem with that because you got to do that the right way anyway let's talk about not being able to sell eggs slaughter chickens and sell chickens okay first of all you are not going to run Uh, any kind of significantly sized operation in a suburban environment anyway to be able to be routinely slaughtering 50 chickens or something like this and doing commercial business that way. And I can understand why many people in suburbia wouldn't want that done. I get that. If you're going to grow uh, your chickens and you're going to have some layers and maybe get some uh, some birds that you're going to raise each year to slaughter, let's say a dozen or something like that, you can only have so many birds in a backyard in a suburban environment, right? And let's say a dozen of those birds every year are going to graduate to uh, the plate. Uh, don't don't make a big deal out of it. Just freaking do it, and don't do don't stand in your backyard with your neighbor watching you slaughter. Set up some cones and slaughter in your garage, and don't talk about it, and don't worry about it. Uh, as far as selling eggs, that's really your own business. Um, but you're not going to make you're not going to become an egg mogul anyway. I think that this is a case where would I prefer the government to just stay the hell out of it altogether? Yes. But if you have an opportunity to give people the liberty to at least engage in some use with backyard poultry, don't get in your own damn way. Don't cut your nose off to spite your face, man. This is just ridiculous. Now, on the approval process and pre-inspection and fees and stuff like that, you know, I mean, I, I think that's going a little bit too far. But this is what the reality is. This is why I want you to understand why cities and, and, and counties and stuff do stuff like this. 
they're being asked to allow something that's currently not allowed. All right, so that's you got to you put this put yourself in the mind of the bureaucrat for a minute. The first thing the bureaucrat says is, "Who's going to bitch about this? Who's going to be pissed off about this and not give me a check uh, for my election fund next year that I've always counted on to do that?" Who is going to be pissed and vote for my opponent to get rid of this thing? Right now, if I leave it alone as the status quo, maybe some people will be upset, but I'm probably likely to keep my job. So if I'm going to do this because it makes sense and I, I'm actually a decent person in government and I want to make allowance for this because it's reasonable, how do I do this and protect my ass? So we say we're going to have a very specific way with a limit on numbers so that nobody can bitch because... Frankly, if you have four hands in your backyard, it really can't bother your neighbor unless your neighbor's just a pain in the ass, and that will deal with. So that's what they're doing. They're covering their ass here. They're saying, you know what, we're not going to have stinky coops. We're not going to have some guy with 400 chickens in his backyard and, and what have you. Now, if right now you were in a place where there was free reign and you could pretty much do whatever you want, they wanted to bring these onerous restrictions in, I would have a totally different take on it. But this is an opportunity for many people in your area to open up a whole new world. And the reality is if we want to really do things to rebuild our soils, even at the suburban level, we need animals to be a part of it. And there's probably not much better than the chicken to do things like that. So I wouldn't get in the way of this law. If I would go through it. And if there's anything that's a little bit over the top, like I might pick one or two restrictions and say, is there any way we can moderate these? I might go to a town council and say, look, I think these are all great, but I'd like to moderate. On, on the sale of eggs and meat, don't even go there. You'll kill the damn thing. You'll kill it before it has a chance. Because the reality is you're not going to be able, with the other regulations that are already in your way, able to do that in a suburban zoned environment anyway. But if your buddy says, hey, man, I'll give you a six-pack of homebrew uh, once a week for half a dozen eggs, then do it. If your other buddy says, hey, man, I'll, I'll give you five bucks for, for, for a dozen eggs or three bucks for a dozen eggs and you have enough egg production to do that, then do it. But if you think you're going to move into, let's say, a full-scale uh, poultry production environment, you can't do it in the suburbs. It does, there's not enough space. It doesn't work. And there is a certain point where we as people that want to be homesteaders have to be reasonable in saying there's certain things that if we want to do them, we need to seek the right environment to do that. And, and then we need to reasonably also say, now that I've done that, you need to stay out of my face. So it might be something like those restrictions apply to lots uh, a half acre and less uh, and, or, or something like that. So that might be some kind of thing you could do down the road. But honestly, I would be careful with trying to do things like that. I wouldn't want this thing shit-canned. I would try to get this passed first, and then I would try to create an initiative for larger plots of land down the road. Let's take another call. I say I have a little treat out in the country, and it's a dirt road, so you can see the tire tracks going in and out of the driveway. I put up a chain basically to keep the honest people out, but uh, I'd like to do something a little bit maybe further back in the driveway with some signage and things to intimidate people so they'll uh, think twice about coming onto the property. What are your thoughts? Bye. Well, my wife went online and found a place where you can have like official like parking signs, warning signs and things like that made up and she made one that said uh, there's, there's nothing here worth dying for uh, but plenty here worth killing for. Uh, and that was one that sparked uh, totally different reactions from two different groups of people. One, that puts you in extreme liability. Well, not if you put it up and you're not even there. Right, and that's—it's an intimidating sign. It doesn't mean that you're going to go and shoot somebody just because they showed up there, does it? Um, but it would make me think twice if I saw it. 
But some less, more, you know, less conventional things that I've seen be very effective. There's a guy that lives kind of the end of the road that we live on, and he's not there anymore. He sold it to some new people. But some, some people went back there, kids, and ended up starting a fire and burned down half the mountain and almost burned his house down, and it, it, it set him off. And he put up a sign, uh, just a plywood sign, spray-painted, that said, Keep out or else, and every word was lowercase, and it was kind of hillbilly-looking handwriting. And I gotta tell you, I know the guy and he knew me and he was okay with me being up there and it still kind of made me go, uh, when I walked past it, right? And he knows me and, I, and I'm like, I hope he doesn't confuse me for somebody else and I know he's not gonna do it. And then these new people moved in and these guys were like, you know, to us it means or else we might hug you. I mean, these guys are as pacifist as you could get. And once they moved in, they just left the signs there. And it's still, every time you walk up there, you go, man, I'm glad I know who these people are. So if I feel that way looking at it, then you got to understand that somebody that doesn't know what's, you know, what's going on may feel that, that way as well, uh, and, and quite a bit more. Another sign that I saw that was very effective, I used to go hunting at a place for wild boar in central Texas. And the first time I got there, I get to the gate, and the gate's open, and they, they got directions on how to get there. And they got the name of the so I know I'm in the right place. And the sign says, you're not lost, you're trespassing, go back. Okay? That is a very effective sign because it takes away the number one excuse that people give when they get caught at a place like that. Oh, we were just lost, and we were trying to find our way around. This man told me they were only on property three days a week. They had a full-time business off-site, and they ran this as a weekend hunting lodge for feral hogs. And they had, on average, one to two uh, break-ins, thefts, things like that a week. They put up all kinds of no trespassing signs. When they put up that sign, they have maybe, maybe one or two incidents a year as opposed to one or two incidents a week. He said it's the most effective thing that they've ever done. There is a harsh reality, though. If you have an unoccupied structure uh, somewhere out in the woods and there's no neighbors in line of sight that can keep an eye on your place, it's always a risk. We had the risk. We had some issues with it. Gates do help. Chains do help. Here's another thing you could do if you wanted to. You could do something a, a buddy of mine, uh, in fact, kind of an older guy named Petey that I used to go hunting with up county PA when I was a kid. He was kind of a, an adopted uncle, so to speak. And um, his place... He let kind of the trail that you're talking about kind of grow in where you really couldn't see it, but you could turn in there. And he could, he could drive his old Jeep down there, and as soon as he'd get to it, he'd just turn in and go right through it, and he knew right where it was. And I thought this guy was so cool. So we were heading down this kind of windy path, and he made it windy so it was hard to see his little his – little, actually, his was uh, like an old single-wide trailer that he had set up. This is a little hunting cabin. And you get to a certain point, and there's this huge rut across the road. I mean, just a ditch. That If you had a four-wheeler and you went into it, you're stuck. And if you went out far enough, I guess you could work your way around it through the thick brush and all, but the road itself was impeded by this rut. And he gets out, and he, he had two huge oak planks hidden back in the, in the bush, set up on rocks so they wouldn't rot, and that old oak, you, this might be something you'd have to keep in the back of your truck or whatever. He kept his on site because that old oak, guys, uh, I don't know if you've ever messed with it, but you try to drive a nail into it, and it's all but impossible. He'd get out, he'd lay them down in front of his tires, and he'd drive across the rut, and then he'd pick them up, and he'd throw them in the back of the Jeep until we, until we left. When we finally left, he'd leave them uh, back in the bush again. And I asked him, why don't you just keep them all the time? And he said, because i got other relations that use the place. They know where it is. They can get to it. But while we're here, I know no one's getting a vehicle in here. 
And I said to him, well, Petey, can't people just walk in? He goes, yeah, but if you walk in, you can only carry so much out. So to him, keeping the vehicle out was almost as important as keeping the individual out. So those are some thoughts that I have. Um, but the reality is if you have a retreat unoccupied without a good neighbor looking after it, it will always be a risk, and there's only so much you can do. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Justin in New Hampshire. Uh, I just wanted to ask you your opinions on learning a second language as a uh, preparedness skill. Uh, up here in New Hampshire, obviously, we border French-speaking Canada and are likely to purchase bug-out slash homestead land in Maine, even closer to Canada, uh, French-speaking territory. Uh, my wife and I have decided that learning French would have some utility both from a vacation standpoint and a uh, possible SHTF situation. I was wondering if you think that this might be a valuable low-cost activity for people to uh, expand their knowledge in if they live close to an area where English might not necessarily be the only language they need to get by. You know, maybe Texans should brush up on their Spanish, um, people from Louisiana, maybe French of their own, uh, Floridians, Spanish in their case, and, well, we'll leave California where it is. Um, it seems that uh, Rosetta Stone is a low-cost investment, something that a couple can work on together that might have everyday practical utility if you like to travel, uh, but might also come in hand in the event of a societal breakdown. Just looking uh, forward to your thoughts on this. I think it's something that can be fun, low cost, and have utility. And, hey, if you want to talk around your friends or uh, others and a code, so to speak, might be worth considering. Uh, just interested on your thoughts. Maybe we're wasting our time. You tell me. Uh, look forward to hearing from you. Thanks. Well, let's start out with the first thing that, that springs to mind when I ever, ever I hear this. There's a huge group of people out there that are extremely intolerant, in my view, um, on the immigration issue. Uh, and, and intolerant is not the right word. It's ultra-sensitive. And most of these people are of the opinion, if you are an immigrant and you want to come here, um, that if you come through the front door, you're welcome. And if you come through the back door, you're not because you're breaking the law. And I completely agree. The problem is, like many issues that people become sensitive to, when they hear something that, that in any way seems to be on the other side of that issue, they immediately have a reflex reaction. So there's a lot of people that get really pissed off about the concept of learning Spanish because of crap like you have to print Spanish on the back of the form and you know jobs that require people to speak Spanish so they can work for the government, which just seems ridiculous to them and things like that, and I agree. But if you take that to mean, well, you shouldn't learn how to speak Spanish when you live in a part of the country with a large Spanish-speaking population, that's pretty freaking stupid in my opinion. I think it's a tremendous skill to add a second or even a third language to what you're able to do. And I think it makes a lot of sense to start out with, as you're suggesting, the language that would be most prevalent for you in the area that you occupy. So if you are on the French-Canadian border, on the eastern Canadian border, the, the, the French would probably be where I would start. And if you're in the southwestern United States and southeastern United States uh, a lot as well, I would say Spanish. And I'd say Spanish 
is valuable all over the place. Spanish is one of the most spoken languages in the world. It can't compete with Chinese or Hindi due to the populations of the nations where those are native languages. But um, when it comes to the number of countries that speak a, a certain language, Spanish and English are the two most broadly spoken languages based on the number of nations that utilize them in one form or another, either as a primary or a secondary language. Spanish being a Latinaic language, if you speak Spanish, you can fumble, if you speak Spanish fluently, let's say, you can fumble your way through a conversation with someone speaking Portuguese. Not really, but enough to kind of figure it out, and learning it is, is, is fairly easy to do. And I would say not to the same extent, but with some level Italian as well. So I think that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great language, and I think French has a lot of things going for it as well. It's just another skill, and I think that's how we have to look at it. Just like you know, learning how to make a knife, or learning how to do a bow drill fire, or learning how to operate a weapon correctly. It's learning to communicate with a new means of communication. So it's it's you know, could put it into the same kit uh, as learning how to effectively communicate with ham radio, or effectively communicate with a CB, or effectively communicate with Morse code, um, with probably broader applications and more likelihood of actually using them. There's another thing that learning another language helps you to do that when I was in school learning one I thought it was stupid and as an arrogant teenager I felt like I shouldn't have to do it and I didn't understand why and I didn't do really good in Spanish but I did well enough that I remembered things like verbal conjugation and things like that then I ended up in the military and I ended up in the military in places like Panama and uh, Honduras and a little stint in Costa Rica and Colombia and all of a sudden I wish I'd paid more attention in Spanish class because you know people that live there don't speak English just because you do so that got me to a point where I became quite fluent in Spanish and then all of the concepts of you know voy vas va vamos vas van conjugation of the verb you know uh, it all kind of came back to me. And then a lot of the things from English grammar class that just, I don't care. I don't, can we read a book and talk about it? I don't give a damn what the predicate is. I, things like that all of a sudden started to make sense to me better. And the lesson there and the reason so many colleges require you to have a foreign language as part of your high school as a prerequisite is when you study a second language, you actually understand your own language better. And a lot of people ask me, how did you get so good at communicating ideas? And I don't think it's why, but I think it's an, uh, an enhancement that speaking Spanish fairly well that I am able to better communicate in my own language. And I think that that's another advantage that people would overlook with a foreign language. So I say go for it. I think Rosetta Stone is probably the best-known tool. I've never used it myself, so I don't know. I'd love to hear from some of you. I know I bought a group of tapes one time to try to learn Russian, and uh, it was really difficult, and it didn't work out, and I gave up on it, and I went back to learning more Spanish since I already had kind of the leg up on that. But uh, it's something that I would like to do is add a third language, uh, and I think it makes a lot of sense. I don't know what language I would particularly want to study. Right now, I think with global implications, especially for young people, some huge advantages might exist in learning Chinese. Uh, seriously. Seriously huge advantages in learning Chinese or Russian. Uh, I think there, there are two dialects that, uh, dialects is not the word, right word, two languages with a lot of opportunity in global trade in the future, two very up and coming, uh, societies, Spanish as well. Um, and then as I've mentioned already, Portuguese with, uh, Brazil actually, you know, a lot of people think of it as a Spanish or Hispanic nation, but it's, uh, it, it, the official language of Brazil, as far as I know, is Portuguese. 
which is similar to Spanish, but definitely not the same. And, you know, the first time I ever tried to talk to somebody speaking Portuguese, I'm like, oh, I can figure this out. I oh, Hold on, slow down. Despacio. And they're what? Oh, shit. That doesn't mean the same thing. So um, those are certain languages that I think would have uh, real opportunities for the future. Spanish, Russian, uh, Portuguese, uh, Chinese. Uh, and, and probably just about any language has the, the similar benefit ratio, but those are some that I see having uh, for those that might be involved with any type of international uh, trade or working for companies that are engaged in that, uh, some real significant advantages. Uh, back in the 80s, everybody was hip on learning Japanese, and uh, I don't know that it's really as advantageous as a lot of people thought it was going to be. Well, let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is J.D. from Ohio with two quick questions about compost. It's my understanding that blood and bone meal are great compost activators for both slow piles, like you keep over winter, and faster options such as a compost, compost tumbler. Question number one is, other than varmint considerations, would fish carcasses provide a similar or same function in a compost pile? Second question, since it is hunting season now, would blood from a fresh kill such as a deer work as well? Thanks for a great show. Appreciate it. Bye. Good questions, and it's pretty much yes all around. Let's start out with a couple of things. Let's start out with the fish. The problem with fish is they tend to stink, uh, and they stink really, really bad. So there's two ways you can use fish for fertilizer and avoid the stink. One is to take a bed or a place where you're wanting that fertility and dig a hole a minimum of eight inches deep. Six inches would probably still work, and bury it. And if you bury it under that much cover, it will decompose in an anaerobic fashion underground, and it will lend a huge amount of fertility to the soil. And whatever's down there, whether it's whole small fishes or something like that, or the remains of fillets or things, will will become an incredibly valuable component to uh, your soil structure without having to use them in a composting pile. When I was a little kid, one of my favorite tasks to be given was go up to the little uh, slush dam and catch some sunfish. And I would go up every year, and there were 28 rose bushes in front of my grandmother's house. And every spring, I'd be sent to go assassinate 28 sunfish, little guys about four or five inches long. I would come home, and I would dig a hole at an angle. Toward the, you know, from the outside toward the, 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 the roots of the rose bushes and insert one little sunfish into each bush. And my grandmother would pay me, I think, a dollar for that. And I think I would have done it absolutely for free because it was great. Uh, she had the most beautiful roses you've ever seen in your life. And that was the t sum total of the fertility addition uh, to some very well-managed, you know, flower beds that these things were in. But that was the big fertility boost given every year was just one little sunfish. So that can work. If you want to compost something like sunfish, or let's say you have the waste, uh, you know, you've skinned out and, and boned out the meat of a small game animal like uh, a squirrel or something, like relatively small bone structure. If you have a good one cubic meter or larger active hot compost pile that you're turning every three or four days, you can compost anything in there. Jeff, Wa uh, Jeff Lawton composted a wallaby, which is like half the size of a kangaroo. And in 21 days, there was nothing left. Bones are all gone. So if you want to use things like that, the key is to be hot, active compost. Not these little bins and stuff like that. Cubic meter, big pile, a good mix of nitrogen and carbon. And that, that will work really well for that. Otherwise, I'm less worried about varmints because uh, they'll just come take it away. And, and then you lose it, but it's not a big deal, as I am about stink. Because if you've ever had remains left around, you know they can stink really, really bad. Now, let's say blood from a fr fresh kill. I don't care if it's a deer, or I don't care if you maybe you slaughter uh, 30 chickens a year. And you, you, know, you do this, the, the throat-cutting thing into a bucket. Always dump that into your compost. 
The blood from uh, these animals is extremely rich in nitrogen. And it, it's just a resource that's too precious to let go to waste. And uh, I am not one of these people like, I use every single part of the animal, dude, because I want to be like my native ancestors or anything. But I do think if something's there that's a resource that can be harnessed, uh, that it is incumbent upon us as we've taken this animal's life to utilize it to its fullest extent. So generally speaking, people just you know wash away or dump out blood. But if we have compost, and we can do blood as a direct addition to the soil and garden beds as well. So if we don't have a composting uh, pit, we can collect that blood and we can spread it out over an area that we're going to be gardening or growing things the next year, turn it in a little bit, put a little layer of mulch over it, and it's a great addition to the soil, whether direct or as an activator enhancer to our compost. Blood meal is simply blood cooked down until it kind of like gets down to a gummy crystallized form. That's all. It's not like they, they, they mix it with something. Bone meal is ground up bones. And that's something that's a little more difficult to pull off on your own. Uh, I've never tried grinding bones or anything like that. Again, even significantly skele uh, large skeletal structures put into an active hot compost pile will literally cook into the, I mean, you'll find little pieces here and there. It's amazing. But this is a, to do that, We're talking about a hot compost pile. We're talking about 165 degrees Fahrenheit in the center of that pile. And we're talking about keeping that, that body in, in that hot cook zone. And if you think about something held at 165 degrees for about 20 to 25 days that it would take to cook off a pile that big, you're talking about the ultimate slow cooking. right? And, and it will break down immensely. And whatever is left, even if you can find some bones and all, they won't stink or be rancid or anything like that. And they can always be tossed into the next batch. So that's how I would handle it. So I would say anybody with, uh, with deer, uh, you know, you bring them home and, and you, you hang them up and you, you, you slit the, the, the throat and bleed them fully out before you go to skinning and, and, and butchering. Anything like that, yes. Any livestock, absolutely. I know for some people this is kind of like a, a squeamish topic or something like that, but I do believe, in spite of like, you know, kind of my mock mockery of the people that are all like space cadet about it, that when we take an animal's life, then we have a certain responsibility to use it in some fitting fashion. And, and composting is one way that we can use some of the parts that we would otherwise discard. And that was a great question to finish up on. I hope you guys enjoyed this. I did my best on the show. I'm still fighting a wicked ass case of the crud. Uh, hopefully I'll feel better by next week and I'll be back. We have some cool stuff coming next week. Episode 1000, The Revolution is U2.0 video will come out sometime next week as, uh, in addition to some other things. I'm really looking forward to doing kind of a follow-up on the problems presented uh, by James Howard Kunstler and my libertarian view on how we can address them and going deeper into the, uh, the question that was asked as the lead-off question today. And like I said, I had to hold myself back because it's in my mind now. It's on my heart. I want to talk about it, but I'm going to hold it until next week. And with that, I hope you guys have a great weekend. And with that, this has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Yeah.